September 1760. The French in Montreal have surrendered to the British Empire, marking the military end of the French and Indian War, fought for mastery of the North American continent. Acting under orders from British Commander-in-Chief in North America, General Jeffrey Amherst, legendary frontier partisan ranger Major Robert Rogers sets out with a flotilla of whaleboats from Montreal, Canada, up the St. Lawrence River to Lake Erie. His orders are to take the surrender of Fort Detroit from the French garrison. Rogers' expedition is a gambit to assert British mastery over the vast interior of North America, from the Great Lakes to the Ohio River and west to the Mississippi, territory that was home to an array of Indian First Nations that had until recently been allied to the French. And while their French allies may have lost the war and surrendered to the British, the First Nations people do not consider themselves a conquered people. For the past five years, Great Britain and France have been locked in a titanic global struggle for supremacy in North America, Europe, the Caribbean, and the Indian subcontinent. It's not for nothing that many historians call what we call the French and Indian War and what was known in Europe as the Seven Years' War the first true world war. For those past five years, the forests of North America have been a theater of savage partisan warfare and major military campaigns as these two great European powers contested for massive stakes. Control of the Ohio country, the Lake Champlain corridor, and ultimately Canada. The Indian peoples of the Ohio country, New York and Pennsylvania, Canada and the Great Lakes sought to further their own interests in this titanic, world-changing conflict. Most sided with the French, especially in the early days of the war when French successes piled up on English failures, leaving English settlements along the Pennsylvania, New York, and Virginia frontier vulnerable to raids. As the British army began to turn the tide, the Indians, always acting with their own agency and for their own ends, sought accommodation. In an epic campaign, the British took the fortress city of Quebec in 1759, followed the next year by the taking of Montreal. The French capitulated. and Though it would take more than two years to finalize a peace accord, the British Empire was now effectively master of Canada, the Ohio country, and the Great Lakes region, which made them master of the lucrative fur trade and master of lands that would tempt speculators and settlers from the British colonies on the Atlantic seaboard to venture beyond the Appalachian mountain chain in search of vast economic gain or simply a yeoman's share of the dream of farm and homestead. The British were conquerors. And the French inhabitants accepted that their sovereignty had been vanquished. But the Indian peoples of the region knew themselves to be unconquered, no matter what flag flew over the trading posts and forts of the North American interior. This gap in understanding of the relationship between the British Empire and the Indians would lead to no end of bloody trouble. A number of factors laid a powder train 
that would in time ignite and cause a massive explosion of frontier violence that has become known to history variously as Pontiac's Conspiracy, Pontiac's Rebellion, Pontiac's Uprising, or simply Pontiac's War. And we need to take a minute to, to talk about that nomenclature. The various names for this conflict all include the name of the Odawa leader, Pontiac, who led a coalition of native peoples in a long and ultimately unsuccessful siege of Fort Detroit on the Great Lakes. For a long time, historians perceived this Odawa leader to be the mastermind of this Indian insurgency that contested British dominion. As we'll see, attributing what was a wide and complex Indian insurgency to one key leader is a gross oversimplification. But Pontiac did play a significant role, significant enough that it's reasonable to leave his name attached to the conflict. And what we call the conflict matters. It was not a rebellion. Neither the British nor the Indians considered the Indians to be subjects of the British crown, as the French inhabitants of Canada became after the French surrender. If they weren't part of the empire, the Indians couldn't be rebels against it. Nor was it, as has been considered by 19th century historians, a conspiracy hatched by French revanchists manipulating and using the prospect of a French resurgence to manipulate the natives. As we'll see, Pontiac used the prospect of French support to motivate his followers, and there was some material support out of the unsurrendered French posts in the Illinois country, but this insurgency was an Indian insurgency all the way. And it was the most successful Indian insurgency east of the Mississippi River. In 1763-64, to 64, Indian militants from an array of nations took every British post in the Lakes region and into the Ohio country, with the exceptions of bastions at Detroit, Fort Pitt, and Fort Niagara that were just too big and, and, and too powerful for them to, to take. They pushed the New York and Pennsylvania settlement frontier back in a brutal terror campaign that would create a cultural memory that would shape frontier conflicts across the continent for more than a century. They conducted siege operations and set-piece battles, which people contemporary to their time and since have thought to be foreign to the Indian way of war. When both sides agreed to an armistice, and it really was an armistice, it wasn't a, a, a true peace agreement, the Indians had not won the war, but they hadn't lost it either. And they established terms of a relationship with the British Empire that would shape history all the way up through the War of 1812. So let's dig into the factors that set the stage for what we're going to simply call Pontiac's War. The first and most significant factor is simply the British drive for dominance. The British Empire had won a massive victory in what had become a global war with France at a massive expense in both blood and treasure. 
the empire had achieved a status as great as that of Rome, and the commanders on the ground in North America were determined to assert that status. For more than a century, the British, as well as the French, had been compelled to treat native peoples with some level of care and diplomacy in order to keep them on side or neutral, if possible, in these ongoing imperial struggles between Britain and France. With the French removed from the equation, the British felt that there was no need to be so diplomatic anymore. General Amherst and his his subordinate commanders in North America were determined to impress upon the native peoples that they were now entirely dependent on the British. Gregory Evans Dowd lays the responsibility for the war squarely at the feet of the British North American Command in his book, War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire. Dowd writes, Immediate causes of the war varied from place to place, but at the two critical points of Detroit and Pittsburgh, Indians confronted commanders who, like the overall commander, Jeffrey Amherst, embodied the drive for an empire of domination. And these commanders did this through calculated displays of disrespect, ceasing to offer diplomatic presence, which Amherst considered to be bribes, to Indian representatives. Such presents were considered integral to diplomacy and an indication of respect and affection amongst the native peoples, and their withdrawal was was deeply offensive. And it wasn't a cultural misunderstanding. This was deliberately done. It was a calculated insult to let the Indians know that they were now in a subordinate position. Using the curtailing of gift-giving as a signal of a change in relationship status also dovetailed perfectly with an absolute imperative for the British administration to economize. What they would call the the Seven Years' War had saddled the victorious British Empire with an enormous debt burden, which they would attempt shortly to ease through taxing American colonies to pay for their own defense, which had explosive consequences of its own. In 1760 and 61, Amherst tried to reset the diplomatic and trade relationship with the native peoples of the Great Lakes, uh, the New York and Pennsylvania frontiers, and the Ohio country. Experienced men in the Indian service, men like the British Indian superintendent Sir William Johnson, tried to dissuade Amherst from this path, recognizing that economizing at the front end would end up costing more in the long run, which it did, in fact. Um, but it's, it's important to, to recognize, as Timothy Toddish and, and Todd Harburn point out in their book, A Most Troublesome Situation, the British Military and the Pontiac Indian Uprising of 1763-1764, that Amherst, at least in, in 1761, wasn't putting the screws to the Indians in an attempt to destroy them. Toddish and Harburn write, Contrary to the belief of some historians, he did not advocate mistreating or cheating the Indians. Rather, he supported free and fair trade, while at the same time protecting the traders and reducing costs. 
They quote Amherst writing to Sir William Johnson. Our intercourse must be free and safe. To make it more so, and to improve all the advantage that must of necessity result from the possession of so valuable a country, I propose, so soon as the season will admit of it, not only to garrison these several posts properly, but I propose to appoint a person of knowledge and probity to be governor at the Detroit, with direction to open a free and fair trade between the subjects and the Indians, giving to each such advantages as shall make it their respective interests to deal fairly and honestly by each other, and at the same time to reap reasonable profits. I should therefore be much obliged to you for such hints as may enable me to establish this trade upon a lasting and good foundation, by acquainting me with what commodities it will be most proper to send among the Indians, their value, and what profit the trader should have to enable him to keep up with a reasonable gain, and without imposing upon the Indians, who, so long as they behave well, must not be imposed upon, but receive a just equivalent for their furs." But Amherst did insist on an element of trade policy that the Indians perceived as not only a threat to their sovereignty, but to their very survival. The general proposed to keep them in constant short supply of ammunition, believing that this would dissuade the Indians from any notion of challenging British domination by force. The Indians were accustomed in dealing with the French and to some degree also with British traders, to receiving powder and ball gratis as, again, presents, um, which enabled them to hunt effectively for furs and, uh, and substance and also to, uh, to fight on behalf of their respective European partners. And Amherst proposed to do away with this tradition. With regard to furnishing the latter, the Indians, with a little clothing, some arms and ammunition to hunt with, that is all very well in cases of necessity. But, as when the intended trade is once established, they will be able to supply themselves with these from the traders for their furs, I do not see why the crown should be put to that expense. I am not either for giving them any provisions, when they find they can get it for asking for, they will grow remiss in their hunting, which should industriously be avoided. For so long as their minds are intent on business, they will not have leisure to hatch mischief. Services must be rewarded. It has ever been a maxim with me. But as to purchasing good behavior, either of Indians or any others, that is what I do not understand. When men of whatsoever race behave ill, they must be punished, but not bribed. At this point in history, the native peoples east of the Mississippi River had for a very long time been almost totally dependent upon European supplies of gunpowder, as were European colonists. There, there was uh, very little powder actually made, manufactured in the uh, American colonies at this time. Now, without a French source of gunpowder, the Indians were indeed in a dependent state. The musket had long replaced the bow uh, for hunting and for warfare. And without a steady supply of powder and ball, the Indians couldn't hunt to feed their families, 
or commercially to trade for vital goods from foodstuffs to blankets, kettles, knives and axes, clothing, and for brandy and rum, which the natives had developed a voracious and terribly destructive appetite for. The British had them in a vice. Again, Amherst did want to use this uh, for domination, but uh, he also sort of had a, a moral imperative that he was operating off of that uh, was sort of becoming in vogue at this time, a sort of, of capitalist work ethic that, uh, that demanded that, that people earn their keep. And, uh, and he wanted to see the Indian trade based upon those lines rather than the classic gift-giving lines that, uh, that had been in force over the past almost two centuries at this point. But in a classic, ironic example of creating the situation that you're trying to avoid, Amherst's restrictive ammunition policy, instead of keeping the Indians cowed, convinced them that the British wanted to make them slaves or kill them slowly. And they were ready to lay it all on the line to resist that fate. So with the, the, their cognizance of their own dependency and vulnerability, a significant spiritual revival movement arose led by a, a Lenape or Delaware prophet named Neolin. Neolin's movement was very typical of native revivalist movements that sprang up globally during the whole period of European colonization from the 18th century through the 20th century. The elements are, are really consistent and, and similar. Uh, it's an admixture of native and Christian religious symbolism. Uh, most of the, the prophets that arose amongst the natives had also had contact with Christian missionaries and adopted some Christian symbolism into, into their symbolism. It involved rejection of European technology and a return to the old ways as a means of recovering the lost cultural soul. And uh, that almost always meant an emphasis on the rejection of alcohol. Um, all of these prophets recognized that alcohol was profoundly destructive to native individuals and to families and society. And uh, so rejection of, of spiritus liquors was always a part of these revivalist movements, but not rejection of firearms technology. Because if you were going to recover native culture and sovereignty, it was handy to have the most advanced means available to, uh, to fight those battles. And these movements always held out the promise of divine intervention to cause the disappearance or the removal of European invaders, which made them very attractive to militants who wanted to help that disappearance along. Historians debate the impact of 
these kinds of spiritual movements in native resistance was Neolin advocating violence against white people in general or against the British but not the French? Was he advocating violence at all? Did Pontiac and the other military leaders of the 1763-64 war believe Neolin's message or did they hijack it to lend spiritual fervor to their own militant movements? However you parse these questions out, it seems evident that Neolin's movement was, was both a reflection of cultural anxieties and a catalyst for doing something about them. As the British gained the upper hand in the later years of the French and Indian War, the Indian allies of the French began to fall away. This wasn't disloyalty on their part. The native peoples had always been acting as their own agents in their own interests. By 1759, many of them saw the writing on the wall and figured that they had better come to some accommodation with Great Britain. That accommodation included agreements to return captives taken in raids along the frontier from New York to Virginia. The problem was that the captives were not mere captives. Many of them, most of them, had been adopted into Indian families. And this was a very common thing through, throughout uh, the woodland cultures of North America and under this constant demographic pressure um, from losses during war and from disease, native peoples used adoption as a way to bolster their their populations. The uh, in many of, of the cultures, a an adopted captive literally took the place of a lost loved one. And so they were very reluctant to give these people up and return them to colonial society. And a great many of the captives, to a degree that was really troubling to British authorities and to people like Benjamin Franklin who commented on it, didn't want to return to white society. They were very happy um, in their adopted culture. The British read the reluctance of the Indians to give up their captives as duplicity, and uh, the Indians bristled at pressure that the British brought to bear through the threat of, of trade sanctions. So that was another factor that was increasing tensions in the early 1760s. Perhaps the biggest issue outside of, of the general British desire to dominate was Indian anxiety about encroachment upon their lands. There's a big difference between French colonialism in New France and British colonialism on the Atlantic seaboard, and the Indians understood that difference very well. It gave them reason to be concerned when the British became the so-called masters of the land. The foot, French footprint in North America had always been tiny. I mean, really tiny compared to that of the British. New France was never much of a settler colony. It was really oriented around the fur trade. At the beginning of the French and Indian War, 
there were fewer than 100,000 settlers in New France, in all of New France, Canada and, and on down um, the Mississippi into the Illinois country. And that's compared to 1.5 million British colonists in the 13 colonies. When the French built a fort in Indian country, it was essentially a trading post for the fur trade with a few French traders and, and inhabitants bringing the benefits of trade and no threat. When the British built a fort, settlers, hunters, and farmers inevitably followed, and companies formed amongst the elite of British and colonial society to speculate in Western lands. The Indians understood this. They knew what a surveyor was. The French were hungry for furs, but the British were hungry for the land itself. And now that they were the power in the interior of the country, the Indians feared that they would gradually or swiftly be displaced. It had already happened to the Lenape and the Shawnee in Pennsylvania, and they and the Seneca were the most alarmed of the First Nations by the land hunger of the British. The people of the Great Lakes felt less of that pressure, but they had other reasons to feel pressured. Um, All of these elements ratcheted up tensions for two years until the frontier just ripped open in a spasm of extreme violence. In War Under Heaven, Dowd muses on this witch's brew of insult, affront, and grievance that ultimately led to war. Though wars have reasons, and though rational people fight wars, war is never reducible to reason alone. Powerful sentiments, senses of loyalty, honor, hatred, jealousy, vengeance, and fear must be invoked to bring men and women to kill and to risk death. Summoning strength, warriors and soldiers summon concepts that complicate reason. Honor, the sacred, the country, the cause. Some analysts insist that reason must be worldly and material. Pontiac's war had, to be sure, a worldly, material, reasonable dimension. Indians reasonably feared British landed expansion. They reasonably found the trade inadequate to their needs. But these are the kinds of measurable and quantifiable issues that might have been negotiated had it not become so clear that other issues, pressing matters of the heart, were beyond discussion. British officials clearly conveyed their intention to dominate and to master a conquered continent. To intend less would have been to shed their identities as British imperial leaders. Indians demanded recognition, honor, and respect. Conflicts over foul language, insults, Indian captives, women, patterns of authority, trade, and perhaps above all, presence, revealed clearly that an unbridgeable distance lay between each party's dimming hopes for peace. When Pontiac began his war at Detroit, his example was followed rapidly and with great violence. We're going to explore how Pontiac's war unfolded across a series of episodes. I'm not sure how many at this point, uh, but we're going to go in into detail on a variety of aspects of the conflict and uh, 
the conflict that evolved out of Pontiac's war and actually led directly to the American Revolution. I want to thank all of you for being at this electronic campfire. Thank all of you who support Frontier Partisans, both the podcast and and the blog, uh, through our GoFundMe account and through our Patreon page. And all of you who read and listen and, and share it with your friends. And we'll see you down the trail.